Okay, this is an Ask Me Anything episode. And just one housekeeping item here. I noticed the other day that Amazon canceled my affiliates account. This is the account that allows me to post links to books and to have some portion of your shopping on Amazon through those links come back to support the podcast at no extra cost to you. And they did this because apparently I was in violation of their policy. You can't tell your podcast listeners that following these Amazon links does support the podcast. I'm not sure why they consider this some kind of unethical inducement. Uh, It's obvious that this is why podcasters and content creators use Amazon affiliates links. But honestly, I had never read the fine print, and I don't know how frequently it gets updated. I was certainly not in conscious violation of their policy. And, you know, I, I don't see anything unethical about either way of thinking about this. Obviously, Amazon can have any policy they want, but uh, this is just to inform you that uh, those of you who have been supporting the podcast this way can no longer do that, and that those links are now retired. The only ways to support the podcast are through my website at samharris.org forward slash support, or through Patreon, and you can find a link to Patreon also on my support page. But um, this is, I mentioned this for another reason. This is a larger problem that people are running into online, people who are creating content. Those who use YouTube ads, which I don't, are often finding their videos demonetized suddenly based on some algorithmic or editorial concern about the content. Podcasters and videographers are just finding that their online businesses evaporate overnight. And I've heard from many ex Muslims and secularists that their Facebook pages have been canceled based on some perceived blasphemy or even an organized campaign launched by their religious critics. So It's just a fact that many content creators are very vulnerable to the decisions made by these platforms. And it's easy to lose sight of this vulnerability. When we're on social media and building a platform there, platforms that can be not only useful but indispensable for writers and artists and podcasters, we are using someone else's platform. We are essentially sharecropping for Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. And this can all go away overnight. It's the Wild West out here still when it comes to producing digital content. Okay, so this is a, an Ask Me Anything podcast. I went out on Twitter asking for questions. And it looks like I got 1,400 of them, or at least 1,400 responses to the tweet. Now, I'm going to go through these more quickly than usual in the interest of both hitting more points and, and seeing if I can do it. One of the features I'm building into my meditation app is a Q&A feature where I can answer questions live. So I can announce that I'm going to be on the app for the next hour 
come and ask questions, and it'll be like an audio version of Periscope where you can type in questions and I can respond. And I've never done this really, so let's see how it works. Maybe this feature is something I don't need at all because it'll just cause me to put my foot in my mouth again and again. Okay, first question. Is it possible that the mindfulness notion of the self being an illusion is itself an illusion? Well, almost anything is possible. I'll tell you why I think it's not an illusion. The classic illusion is something that seems a certain way, but then you pay more attention to it. You study it more carefully, and it seems another way, right? So it collapses into another form on the basis of paying more attention to the phenomenon. This can be true of visual illusions. You, know, you, you think there's a, a triangle there, but then you see that the, the sides of the triangle don't even exist, right? Because you, they've been merely implied. So you pay more attention and you see that there is no triangle there on the page, even though there seems to be one. Now, the sense of self, the sense that there's a subject in our heads, a thinker of thoughts, that is a feeling that if you pay more careful attention to it, goes away. And every time it comes back, once you actually know how to pay attention, it is by virtue of being distracted, being captured by something else, being lost in thought, actually. And then when you pay attention again, it goes away. And once you learn how to pay attention, once you really learn how to meditate, it goes away every time. You reliably fail to find this feeling that you've been calling I. Now I talk much more about this in my book, Waking Up. I will talk much more about this in my forthcoming meditation app. But the idea that there may really be a self that just disappears or seems to disappear every time you look for it is no more compelling to me than the idea that there really is a triangle on the page in the Kinesa Klein illusion and that it only seems to disappear every time you look for its sides. And if you're not familiar with the illusion I'm talking about, Google Kinesa Klein triangle and you'll see a triangle bounded by three partial circles or what seems to be a triangle. But again, much more on that in my book Waking Up and in my forthcoming app. Tell me some real-life examples that are good for society and that are informed by Charles Murray's research in the bell curve. I guess I should say a few things about the Charles Murray podcast. I got some considerable criticism for that. Glenn Greenwald called me a racist. No surprises there. But I got actually much less criticism than I would have thought, as did Charles. I, I think we were both pleasantly surprised by the reception. I think he said in his email to me that I appear to have gotten more criticism for having him on the podcast than he was getting for being himself. But in any case, I didn't get all that much. I think people got the point of what I was doing there, which makes me happy. The point of the conversation was not to talk about differences in IQ across race. 
as I think I made clear, that topic doesn't really interest me, and I share some of the skepticism communicated in this question. When I asked Charles what, what the point of this kind of research was, many of you felt that his answer was insufficient and a little confusing. I can tell you what I took his answer to be. He seemed to be saying that if we are misled by an irrational expectation, that intelligence must be the same statistically across populations, then we will perceive any difference in representation of racial groups or ethnic groups in the various walks of life as being synonymous with racism or bad policy. To take another potentially inflammatory example, it would be conceivable to think that because the number of Jews in the NBA isn't exactly in register with the number of Jews in the population, well, then there's some latent anti-Semitism operating there, keeping Jews off the basketball court. Now, does anyone think that? I doubt it. But Charles's general concern is clearly that our expectations and our policies track real facts in the world, and that we not go in search of problems that don't exist, and that we not make other problems that clearly do exist worse by giving them bad remedies. Now, our conversation didn't go into social policy with any depth at all. And I think at one point in the podcast, I, I, I simply said, I am, I'm not informed enough about the consequences of various policies to even have that conversation. But the real purpose of that podcast episode was to perform a kind of exorcism on the topic and Murray's reputation. Again, we're talking about a man who cannot stand up on a college campus without encountering the threat of being physically hounded off of it. UC Berkeley, just the other day, declared that it could not keep Ann Coulter physically safe were she to come to the campus to talk to the college Republicans. Now, I don't agree with Ann Coulter about much. I'm not at all inclined to invite her on the podcast because I think what she says is either boring or insincere, but it's pretty clear we are having a breakdown of civil society when a college cannot keep her safe and puts the onus on her, at least implicitly, and her views, and the views of those who want to hear her speak, rather than on this moral panic that is shutting down conversation on the left. So I wanted Murray here, above all because I realized that I had been somewhat complicit in his defamation merely by my benign neglect of his work. Once it became clear to me that he was, he was a well-intentioned and careful scholar, whatever the merits of his research in fact are, he was not at all the golem that had been created by the hysteria on the left. So, I had that conversation with Charles. I enjoyed it. Most of you seem to find it quite illuminating. And I have no regrets there. We have to be able to talk about facts without at every turn claiming that those with whom we disagree are evil. If you want to see some criticism of the bell curve that came out contemporaneous with its publication, in this Twitter feed, Michael Shermer linked to one of the articles published in Skeptic magazine. 
If you go to skeptic.com and search bell curve, presumably you'll get some older articles there, at least one of which is critical. But I should say that, that there's nothing that I've heard since my podcast with Charles that suggests to me that he was misrepresenting the state of the science circa 2017. In fact, one person I heard from was Richard Hare, an emeritus professor at the University of California, Irvine. Richard is a PhD in psychology who studies the neurobiology of intelligence. And he's written a very recent book for Cambridge University Press entitled The Neuroscience of Intelligence. I have now read part of that book, just arrived the other day. And what's clear from the parts I've read and from his email to me is that the basic science that Murray was discussing has held up. As controversial as it still is in some quarters, the notion of general intelligence seems valid. IQ tests can test for it. There's no reason to think that we are unable to do this in an unbiased way. And the results of these tests are predictive of a wide variety of outcomes, educationally, occupationally, and otherwise. And there seems to be absolutely no question that intelligence is highly heritable and correlates with neurophysiological facts at the level of the brain. So again, this is, this is not my area of special interest, and none of this is to claim that intelligence is the only thing that dictates success in life. I'm sure many of you know some very smart people who haven't done much of anything with their lives or have done some very questionable things. Uh, I certainly know such people, and no doubt we will find out more about the brain basis of intelligence in the coming years. Whether we will be able to augment it directly by brain-machine interface, uh, that's another question that has come up, I see, repeatedly here. Uh, many of you have asked what I think of Elon Musk's new company, Neuralink, and his goal of building a brain-computer interface that not only will be useful for people suffering neurological injury or disease, but will be so useful and so readily adopted that we will all become cyborgs and plug our brains directly into the cloud. Well, first I should say that I don't have any inside information on this. I actually haven't spoken to Elon about this much, uh, apart from early conversations about the fact that he was doing this. Most of what I know about the company I learned recently from Tim Urban's blog post about Elon and Neuralink, uh, which you can read on the Wait But Why blog. And if you don't know Tim Urban and his blog, you, you really should. He's fantastic. He's another one of these content creators who you can support on Patreon, uh, as I do. He's amazing. I will have him on the podcast at some point, because he's doing something very unique. And he's written these very long, really book-length blog posts on Elon and his various companies. He's done it for SpaceX and Tesla, and he just did one for Neuralink. So you can read there just how daunting 
the technical challenges are in doing this, just what it means to put an array of whatever material composition on the cortex or implant anything into the brain, hoping to be able to read out the activity of vast numbers of neurons so as to get the data of conscious and unconscious thought out into the world, much less reading programs from the world back into the brain so as to influence its functioning. This is an incredibly daunting challenge. I think it's no exaggeration to say this is the most ambitious thing, technically, that we can imagine. When you consider the possibility of helping people whose brains have been damaged, either by injury or illness, well then this is totally uncontroversial. It's a wonderful thing to be tempting. Uh, And there's already some progress on those fronts. But when you imagine the bigger picture of fundamentally augmenting human intelligence so that we're not in a losing competition with the machines of the future, well, obviously, there are a few assumptions there that will be controversial, and at least one that strikes me as potentially far-fetched. And that's the assumption that it will be possible to do this in a way that is sufficiently non-invasive so that we'll all want to have our brains connected to the cloud. Anything that requires neurosurgery, obviously, is setting the bar pretty high. And it remains to be seen just how non-invasive a brain-machine interface can become. But the, the technical challenges are fairly astounding, and Tim Urban's blog post will give you a good sense of what they are. Do you think reducing wild animal suffering is a moral blind spot of modern humans or a moral error? I remember hearing about some vegans who thought it a moral duty to prevent various predators on the African savanna from killing their prey. Who knows if that was just a slander of vegans, but I'm sure somebody's capable of thinking that. It is a kind of reductio ad absurdum of an ethical concern for animals. But the underlying fact is that nature is not a theater of moral concern. Really, it is an abattoir. Everything is getting eaten. Every animal, with the exception of the apex predators, lives in perpetual flight from the other animals that want to make it a meal. There is no way to intercede here that doesn't directly cause the starvation and therefore misery and death of some other species. And then when you add the the layer of contagious illness and parasites, right, the fact that every creature is more or less all the time being victimized by various worms and amoebas, it's pretty clear that there is no all-seeing and all-powerful, compassionate God who set this place up for general equanimity. So, yeah, I don't see how we intercede on behalf of the rabbits and the pigeons and take a position against the foxes and coyotes and hawks. I do feel a little strange about people who keep pet snakes 
and repeatedly feed them mammals like mice and rats, there's a cognitive hierarchy there that I wouldn't want to keep standing on the wrong side of day after day. I think the rats and the mice suffer more than the snakes. That could just be my warm-blooded bias. But the neurological details would back me up there. Next question. How is Brazilian jiu-jitsu coming? Slowly, as ever. I absolutely love it. I'm still in the mode of perpetually mitigating injury, so I don't do it nearly as much as I would want to. I think I will probably be a blue belt for the rest of my life at this rate, but it does remain one of the most gratifying hours I can spend doing anything. What are your thoughts on Kevin Kelly's article, The Myth of Superhuman AI? Actually, I've read the article, and uh, Kevin got in touch with me, and we're going to do a podcast, I think in about a month here. I have to check the calendar. But it's, it's already scheduled, and I look forward to that. We, we disagree about many things on this topic, and um, that should be a fun conversation. I think we disagree about religion and a few other things, too, so I'm looking forward to that. How do you think your friend, the late, great Christopher Hitchens, would have dealt with the Trump presidency? Well, eloquently, no doubt. And he is missed more than ever at this point, I would say. Once again, many people are under the impression that he hated the Clintons so much that he would have obviously sided with Trump. Given what I know about Hitch, that seems almost perfectly delusional. I honestly cannot imagine a candidate and his surrogates who are more at odds with Hitch's deepest intellectual values. The lack of honesty and real intellectual engagement with history and with policy and with facts as they can be known. But unfortunately, we do not have the pleasure of his company now. And if you think I'm soft on the Clintons, go back and listen to my podcast with Andrew Sullivan that we did in the run-up to the election. I certainly share most of Hitch's view of both Clintons. But we now have the president we have. And barring some impeachment proceeding relative to the Russian hacking scandal, it would seem we have to make the best of it for the time being. Will you do a podcast with Ben Shapiro on religion? Many people have asked that I do something with Ben. I am certainly open to it. In fact, Dave Rubin has threatened to get us together on his show. I'm not entirely sure what we would get into, but Ben is obviously smart, and we disagree about many things, although Trump is not one of them. Ben is a, last I looked, not a Trump fan. But he is a conservative, and I believe he's a conservative or even orthodox Jew. Not sure, but No doubt there's something to disagree about there, and um, I am open to it. Not sure when it's going to happen, however. Some of you have noticed my trolling of Jocko Willink and his trolling of me online. I forget how this started. I think I once revealed that I was a fan of Downton Abbey on a podcast, and 
started getting slammed for it on Twitter. And then I uh, just went out. I just lurched at Jocko on Twitter saying something like, well, I happen to know that when Jocko's doing his deadlifts in his basement at four in the morning, he's watching old episodes of Downton Abbey. Isn't that right, Jocko? Those of you who don't know Jocko, Jocko is a Navy SEAL and uh, now New York Times number one best-selling author of the book Extreme Ownership with his Navy SEAL co-author, Leif Babin. And Jocko's also a jujitsu black belt. Uh, he's about the most macho guy you will ever meet, but also one of the nicest guys. Anyway, so people have been trying to get us together to debate free will, I think, so because his his kind of core ethic and productivity hack is to take what he calls extreme ownership over the things that happen in your life. You know, when your efforts come to naught, don't blame the world, don't blame other people. You have to own the whole process. That's how you improve. That's how you inspire more trust in people who are collaborating with you. Um, there's a lot to be said about the wisdom of doing that. And people seem to think that this is at odds with my view of free will. It may be in certain cases, but generally speaking, I don't think it is. But in any case, people want us to debate free will, which I would be happy to do. So we've been pitted together online. And Jocko has been threatening to demolish me in debate, and I have been threatening to physically demolish him. And I would encourage those of you who listen to the Jocko podcast to listen to his more recent episodes to detect any sign of fear in him. He can only conceal it for so long. He's got to be under a lot of pressure, knowing that I'm out here training. Hearing from some people here who used to be religious and got reasoned out of their religion by me and others. It's amazing that many people think this never happens. Uh, it happens all the time, and I continually see the evidence of it. So this idea that you can't reason people out of their faith is just not true. What you can't generally do is do it within the hour of a scheduled debate, or otherwise on demand. But it happens. How would someone lose their faith? Just a blow to the head, or a good scare? No, generally it's, it's one of two ways. They either discover the ways in which various doctrines don't make a lot of sense, or they don't want the sort of life that seems to be dictated by a any kind of serious adherence to revelation. So it's some combination of those two. It either doesn't make sense or it doesn't lead somewhere good. But the first reason, I think, is always the more compelling. People will make fairly impressive sacrifices to their own happiness and even to the happiness of their children if they believe that the doctrines that justify and even mandate those sacrifices are true. So the question of truth is everyone's concern. This is another point of confusion, the idea that religious people, religious fundamentalists, aren't really concerned about what's true. No, they're as concerned as anyone. They're far more concerned, in fact, about truth 
than many so-called religious moderates and liberals. Is there hope for centrist politics in the polarized two-party system we're in? Well, I, I certainly hope so. It's hard to even know what the political polls are at the moment. The left and right have become so similar in their hostility to honest conversation and facts. Sanity has to be some distance from those two extremes at this point. But how we energize the center, that's, that's the billion-dollar question. How to unindoctrinate or reason with someone with a severe social justice warrior slash Marxist syndrome. So how to, how to reason with the extreme left? I certainly can't claim to be especially good at that. I know how to collide with them. I know how to encourage them to vilify me and lie about me. I can tell you how to get them to call you a racist pretty quickly. But this is difficult. And it's every bit as difficult as reasoning with an extreme religious fundamentalist or a real racist or xenophobe or anti-Semite on the right. And again, right and left politically are faltering as categories because you know, anti-Semitism is not necessarily just on the right. It's just as prevalent, I would say, on the left at the moment. It's an increasingly confusing Venn diagram of interlocking dogmatisms here. And I can't say I've figured out how best to talk about these things. But as to what one could say to persuade someone who thinks the extreme left is making perfect sense at the moment, well, you might say that you've, you've become so enamored of the traditional wisdom of Islamic culture particularly in places like Egypt, and you want your daughter to appreciate it. You don't want her growing up in the increasingly nationalistic and even white supremacist bubble of American exceptionalism. So you've sent your daughter to Egypt, where she'll be given a belated clitorectomy and um, encouraged for the better part of a year to memorize the Quran to the exclusion of everything else she could be paying attention to and see if your liberal friend sees anything wrong with that. What could possibly be wrong with that? There's really nothing to say if you are far enough to the left, and the moment you spell out what's wrong with that, you have to admit, if you're honest, that the things that are wrong are universally so. If you would be a bad parent to treat your daughter that way, depriving her of all the opportunity, a.k.a. privilege, she has in the West, only to consign her to the crucible of misogyny and sexism and genital mutilation and religious bamboozlement she would encounter in a traditional Muslim context, well then, you have to extend that value judgment across the board. You're unlucky to be a girl born into a society where 98% of girls get clitorectomies, as is the case in a country like Somalia, as I believe is nearly the case in a country like Egypt. And to be taught to memorize the Quran to the exclusion of everything else is a colossal waste of 
human intelligence and creativity. Does your friend doubt that? If it's wrong for you to do it, it's at minimum less than perfectly optimal when the Egyptians do it or the Somalis do it. If you admit that, it's only decent to admire the heroism of someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali when she escapes that unlucky start in life and becomes a highly functioning, articulate, well-educated member of a complex and cosmopolitan society. So that, that whole picture, if you pay attention to the arithmetic of values implied there, you will see that facts don't suddenly cease to become facts once you get on an airplane and fly to a different country. Facts with respect to how human beings can thrive creatively, interpersonally, socially, medically, etc. You can, you can push people's intuitions around in those ways. But whether or not it works in the span of any given conversation, I have seen it impressively fail. And I discuss a specific encounter that um, fairly blew my mind on that point in my book, The Moral Landscape. Can you share some insights on parenting? How does did rational and mindful Sam Harris handle an angry toddler? Oh, well, I suppose with the, the same slack-jawed exasperation that many new parents do. I certainly can't claim any special competence here. I can only say that there's no question mindfulness helps. And I would be a much worse parent without it. Specifically, what mindfulness allows you to do is recover more quickly. It's not that you won't get angry or frustrated or impatient, but the half-life of these reactions can be cut way, way down. And the difference between being angry for an hour versus a minute versus four seconds, these are enormous differences. I mean, just think of the things you can wind up saying and doing in your life if you are filled with rage for an hour, right? But if it only lasts a moment or two, it can only commit you to so much. You know, it might only commit you to a facial expression. It's an enormous difference. And meditation is the best tool I know for allowing us to observe our reaction in the moment that may be taking us somewhere not worth going and allowing us to release it in the next. It really it becomes a kind of superpower. But that's not to say that these same negative emotions won't continue to arise in parenting or anywhere else. In my experience, they certainly do. Another question on parenting, how do you explain other religions and beliefs to your kids? Do you simply give them the info and hope they think critically? Well, we're, we're just getting into the, the age where this conversation becomes more relevant. My oldest daughter certainly knows what I think about the concept that any one of our books was dictated by an omniscient being. She has a sense of how preposterous that is. She also knows that Santa is a fiction, though her enthusiasm for Christmas is undiminished. 
in my experience thus far, this is just not a problem. There's no reason to teach your kids to be disdainful of other people's beliefs. I think you just need to teach them that there's diversity of opinion on a wide range of questions here, and some opinions are more backed up by evidence than others. You want kids who, in an age-appropriate way, but, but as early as possible, can understand that our beliefs about the world need to be tested, and they need to be talked about and revised. So, as a parent, you're constantly giving reasons for things, explaining causal connections in the world. And if you want to be an adult who can reason flexibly about things, even very important things, even things that you have certain hopes and fears about, well, then you want to give your kids those tools as early as they can get them in hand, I think. That's not to say that you want to impart a, a sense of epistemological insecurity to them. You don't want them thinking that grown-ups don't know anything about anything, right, and that anything can change at any moment, because, of course, that's not true. And there are certainly ways of, of misunderstanding intellectual progress that can give that sense. Many people seem to think that the history of scientific progress more or less demonstrates that any notion of scientific truth is pure fiction, because anything we think is true is destined to be reconstrued and finally overturned by some future scientific insight. That is not quite what happens in science. And I, I, I spoke about that, I think, most recently with Lawrence Krauss on the podcast. And I think maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson and I touched on that too. Probably David Deutsch. This topic has been touched several times on the podcast. Not everything is up for grabs. Could you describe what it was like going through your PhD program? And what was it like going back to undergrad after a long break? Well, it was humbling. It was definitely humbling. And even lacerating to go back to finish my undergraduate degree at the late age of 31, I believe, insofar as I can use my, my unconventional experience to illuminate a path for anyone else here, I do recommend that you finish your undergraduate degree before taking time off, because it is just psychologically harder to go back and finish that than it is to go to graduate school. But then when I made the move to my neuroscience PhD program, again, that, it was a very unconventional tour through the academy, and one which I don't think many people could draw any lessons from. First, it was, it was fairly unconventional because when September 11th came around and I wrote my first book, and then my second, I basically disappeared from my lab for about four years or so. I didn't completely disappear. I was still doing some work so, that, so as to remain in contact with my PhD program, but I was fairly AWOL. You know, what was weird there, both psychologically and socially, was that I was becoming a sort of famous person, but I was also a bit of a cautionary tale because my research was clearly stalled 
I wasn't doing much of anything from the, the lab's point of view. And yet I was publishing books and going to conferences. So I was simultaneously one of the most successful and least successful people in the program at that moment. And I had the kind of Janus-faced feeling about myself that you would imagine would grow in that condition. It's not an especially comfortable feeling as a graduate student during those years. But as far as the coursework that preceded my research, well, that was all fine. That I just worked hard, and I've always been a good student, so there were no problems there. But as far as getting my research on track, just motivationally, that was hard because there was definitely a point where it was hard to step away from writing the next book and decide to go back into the lab and write my dissertation. Now, I did sort of kill two birds with one stone there anyway, because I then heavily edited my dissertation and made it my third book, The Moral Landscape. So there was an efficiency I found even there, but it was I did have to sort of get behind myself and push. And my wife, Annika, was a very good influence there as well. So anyway, it worked out, but it was very clear to me that I was not someone who wanted to spend his life in the lab. I really wanted to write books and think about the, the points of contact between scientific research and the philosophy of mind and moral philosophy and increasingly public policy and our political conversations about how we all want to live. And while I did just publish another neuroimaging study recently with my friend Jonas Kaplan and his colleague Sarah Gimbel at USC, there are tens of thousands of neuroscientists doing experiments right now. Whether I think about and write about their data or my own doesn't much matter to me. I don't think my strengths are necessarily best expressed in my coming up with the next experiment that needs to be done so that we can understand something new about the mind. It's not that I don't get ideas for experiments, but I think the experiments I can think of eventually will get done by somebody else. I'm much more interested at this point in thinking about where the preponderance of data is pushing us, or should push us, as a species. What's your gut feeling on the prospect of military conflict between the U.S. and Russia, China, North Korea in the near future? I look into my gut at this moment, and I do not have a feeling. I wasn't spending my day worrying about it until you asked the question. I don't think I will spend the rest of the day worrying about it, so I must think the probability is fairly low in the near term. I mean, obviously, it's totally rational to worry about this problem. And one of the scary things, in my view, about the current administration is that you get the sense that we have a president who is not at all thoughtful about what the risks are here, much less how to deal with them, and that his various statements are merely provocative. In the special case of North Korea, I think it is a very interesting problem ethically and politically. What can the community of nations do in light of 
what I've you know, often described as a hostage crisis. There's very little diversity of opinion on this, and for good reason. The North Korean people, whatever they think is true, however successfully brainwashed they have been by the political cult in which they've been raised, these people are unlucky. And if we could rescue them from their captivity, that would be a good thing. But how do you do it? How do you get China to sufficiently help us do it? These are political and military problems in the end, for which I'm not sure anyone has a good answer. Will you have someone studying transgenderism biologically on at some point? How are you forming your opinions around this issue? Slowly, I would say. I'm not really very focused on this, but I think I will tackle it at some point because it seems increasingly consequential and interesting. I think there's no question that there's a biological basis for this, as there is for basically everything about us that we care about. Do I think people choose to be transgender? I think the answer to that is pretty clearly no. And even if you want to grant some scope to choice here, well, our choices too are the product of our brains. So you have a biological understanding of choice even then, at least in large part. But I consider myself fairly uninformed on this issue. However, I know at least one transgender child, and um, it's been absolutely clear from watching her grow up that um, this is not a matter of a child being culturally indoctrinated into transgenderism. There are biological processes giving rise to this. And um, clearly, we want a society that makes all of the appropriate ethical and political concessions to that reality without a tsunami of political hysteria engulfing everything else we care about. If you think the solution to this problem is we now have to memorize 37 different pronouns and consider conservative speech about this issue akin to physical violence, well then, you are stuck in a moral backwater somewhere near the left extreme of the political spectrum, presumably getting ready to celebrate the passion of Berkeley students when they burn down the campus in response to Milo's next visit. That is a moral and political dead end. I just saw the, the young philosopher Rebecca Tuville savaged by her feminist colleagues for having been so callous as to wonder in the, in the span of a philosophical paper whether there were interesting parallels between gender identity and racial identity. If one can feel that one doesn't really belong to one's, the gender of one's birth, is it also valid to feel that one doesn't belong to the race to which one has seemingly been assigned by birth? But she compared Caitlyn Jenner and the celebration that attended her story to Rachel Dolezal, the woman who was vilified for claiming to be black when, in fact, she was white. 
I believe she's wondered whether there's some kind of intellectual or ethical double standard there, or if there's any anything that we are confused about in that space. That strikes me as a very interesting question to raise, and I've yet to see how she dealt with it, but I can see how the community of so-called feminists and transgender activists dealt with her. She was more or less burned as a witch. Clearly, there's something wrong there. At some point, I'm sure I will talk about this, and no doubt I will get myself into trouble. Even more trouble than I'm in as a result of what I've said over the last 90 seconds. Someone says, just finished your book Free Will and wish it was 10 times longer. Any plans for more on this topic? And then another person follows up, wishing that I would write a full-length response to Dan Dennett's book Freedom Evolves. You know, I I will talk about free will more and more from the first-person side in my app. I think that's the, the right context for it, because insofar as I bring anything novel, to this topic, it is on the first-person side. I I think that, as I say in the book, most people think that there's a, we have a strong first-person experience of freedom of the will. We have a very clear internal sense that we could do other than we do in each moment, that our choices are real. And the problem is just that you can't map this internal experience onto a world of physical causes whether determined or random or some combination thereof. Now, that is a problem, but that's not the only problem. The deeper problem is that this notion of free will doesn't even make subjective sense. I argue that there's not even subjective evidence for it, and that you can notice this if you pay close enough attention to what it's like to be you in each moment. So, this is why I say that the illusion of free will is itself an illusion. There is no illusion of free will. So that's something that I'll get into in my app in a very first-person way. And uh, Dan Dennett and I actually just had a impromptu roundtable discussion about this at TED. Uh, that was not recorded, to my knowledge, so that is lost to the, the winds of time. But it was a good conversation and our most civil one to date, I would say. I think Dan and I have have fully buried the hatchet on that topic, and it was great to see him. Maybe one more here. And again, sorry, this is scarcely a dozen of more than a thousand. Hey Sam, do you plan to read more of The End of Faith? Yes, I, I, I was jailbreaking my book, The End of Faith, on this podcast because the, apparently the audio version is so terrible, which I, which I did not read. So, uh, yes, I will, I will get back to that at some point. I've just been so busy with people to talk to on the podcast. I think I got through chapter three. So I will, I will continue, eventually. Do you think having a large vocabulary is valuable in your line of work and life in general? And what is your advice for expanding it? I certainly think it's valuable because if you don't have the word for something, you are, generally speaking, cognitively closed to the thing itself. There's some exceptions here. If you, if you don't know the name of a certain flower, you can still point to it. You can still think about it. You can still form an opinion about it. You just can't reference it in speech. 
but most concepts aren't like that. Not having the word often means that you don't have the concept either. Take a, a common word like perpendicular. Until someone has taught you that concept, you may have some unconscious sense of that particular spatial relation, but you're certainly unlikely to have a precise one. And not knowing the word orthogonal, which in some ways is just a synonym for perpendicular, you're probably not noticing the kinds of distinctions people make about various ideas and processes in the world. People speak about scientific variables or one thing or another being orthogonal to the topic of interest, perpendicular to it, which means in this case that it's statistically independent of the variable you're talking about. So, you know, what percentage of the population uses the word orthogonal with any comfort? It has to be pretty low, but it's, it's valuable to have that word in your head and thousands like it. As for how to expand your vocabulary, I think you can buy a vocabulary book and deliberately learn lists of new words. That's not a crazy thing to do as a young student. I actually remember being given a book by my father called 30 Days to a More Powerful Vocabulary when I was, I don't know, I had to be 10 or 11, somewhere in there. And I remember doing its exercises and learning, deliberately learning new words, like classic SAT words, like gregarious. And I think it taught you some of the, the etymology of words. I remember that kind of priming the pump for me in terms of my wanting to know the meanings of words as I encountered them. Absent taking some kind of SAT prep style vocabulary course, the process is, is very simple. Just look words up when you don't know them. Use a dictionary. It's never been easier to use a dictionary. Now you can have a dictionary built directly into your browser or on your phone. I remember what it was like to actually physically have to walk across the room and pull down a, a very heavy book. Now there's less of an excuse to be lazy. Just look words up and your understanding of them will gradually grow. But I'd be the first to acknowledge there is a tension here between loving language and using big and useful words because that's what they're there for, and staying in touch with your desire to communicate effectively with as many people as you can communicate with. So I think I, I, think I write more simply than I used to. I use simpler words when the simpler word will do the job. And I think there is a kind of sweet spot here, but I, I acknowledge it's actually hard to find because when you look at someone like Christopher Hitchens, who wrote and spoke so beautifully, much of the pleasure I took in his writing and speaking can be attributed to his vocabulary. He was someone who would, with an unusual lack of self-consciousness, use big words, and make historical allusions that he had to know would lose a significant percentage of his audience, like 99% of his audience. 
and he would just keep on rolling, right? He wouldn't stop to define these words pedantically or remind his audience of the figure or event in history he was referring to. And that, while admirable in some ways, is also a problem in others. And there's just no way to split that baby to make a biblical reference that Hitch would not have felt the need to specify in a way that is going to satisfy everybody. But insofar as you want to understand what other people are writing and saying, by all means, look up the words, learn them. There's only about a million or so in English. And uh, on that note, I think I will leave it there. This has been a bit of an exercise in my being a little less long-winded than normal. Feel free to let me know how that worked out on Twitter, I guess is the best way. I don't know how it will sound to all of you, but I just kind of raced on down the list here. Didn't screen anything in advance. And uh, I'm not really the best judge of whether that is useful to you all. So uh, it would actually be good for you to let me know. Because if I build this function into the app, this will be a far more common practice. And um, I don't want to waste anyone's time. Once again, thank you for your questions. And um, I will be back to you soon with another conversation on the Waking Up Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>